from Luminary and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the author of Great at Work and Collaboration, management professor and researcher Morten Hansen. Consensus is the enemy of good collaboration. That surprises people. I thought we were supposed to sit around and debate until we got total agreement. Consensus is that we all agree. No, it's you disagree to, on something, and at that point, the leader has to step in and make the call. How Morten Hansen found that doing more quality work actually starts with working less. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. So here's a question. What does a hardworking employee look like? Do you see that person staying late at the office? Or maybe they're the first one in and the last one to leave. Or maybe they're good at snap decisions. Or maybe those ideas are all wrong. My guest today, Morton Hansen, has solid but counterintuitive research that shows working hard doesn't mean insane hours with no days off, nor is it an indicator of excellence. Doing great at work really means working effectively, slowing down and knowing your limits. Now, you may have heard my conversation with best-selling business author Jim Collins in an earlier episode when we spoke about his books like Built to Last and Good to Great. Well, my guest, Morton Hansen, met Jim at Stanford Business School, and it was their research collaboration over nine years that led to those two books. Morton eventually went on to co-author the bestseller Great by Choice with Jim Collins. And his latest book, Great at Work, How Top Performers Do Less, Work Better, and Achieve More, explores what all of us can do to lead and work more productively. Today, Morton is a management professor at UC Berkeley. But before his fairly storied career in academia at Stanford, Harvard, and in Europe, Morton started out as a management consultant at BCG in London, the Boston Consulting Group. So there he was, a young Norwegian in the British high finance and business world, trying to make his mark by putting in long hours each week, though he now knows he really didn't need to. It's a big myth that you had to work extremely hard many hours to do really well. Everybody has to work hard, but it doesn't mean that you have to work harder to do better. And in fact, in my last book, Great at Work, that's one part of the research. We looked at hours in correlation with performance. Mm -hmm. And it's a really interesting finding that we found that, yes, you know, if you work 30 hours in a full-time job, you're not going to perform as well. But if you go to 50 hours, you will perform better. 
But then from 50 to 65 hours on average per week, it sort of starts flattening out your performance. Mm. And at 65 hours beyond, like people work really, really hard as we did in, in BCG back then, you're actually declining your performance because your quality of work goes down. Yeah. We'll talk about this in a bit, but um, you had a colleague there who was performing better. You call her Natalie, and but she was working far less than you were. And this was confounding to you. Yeah, it was because, and it was my first year at BCG. So, you know, I was a just college graduate. And what you want to do in your first year, you want to just show what you can do. So you go into the office as much as possible. Like, yeah. I told my fiance at the time, you know, sorry, I, I might come home at 4 a.m., 5 a.m. and then back in the, at 9 a.m. But, you know, this is going to be the, the year where I'm going to make my mark. And I worked like crazy. I mean, 90 hours and, and those kinds of hours. And then I was on a project with Natalie. And one day, I remember it so well today, I, I went in the evening to look for her to ask her a question. She wasn't there. It was like 7 p.m. And I asked around, where's Natalie? And somebody said, oh, no, no, Natalie goes home at 6 p.m. every day. And she's really here on the weekend. And I thought that was odd. Here I am at 90 hours. And she's maybe 50 or 60, working hard, but not 90. And the, here's the thing. She was the star of that project team. She did better than me. She was incredibly good. And that always puzzled me. Here I am putting in 90 hours. And I was capable back then. She was capable, but at 60, she outperformed. And that sort of conundrum, I love this as a management professor because that's kind of a data point. It's one anecdote, but it should spark some question in you. Hmm. And it certainly did be for decades later. <laughs> what did I do wrong and what did she do right? So I should mention, I mean, you decided to, to pursue a PhD after that experience. Was your intention to become an academic at that time? Yes, because um, I did some research and I said, either you, you can become a management consultant, you can become a teacher, but if you want to study this, and I had a professor back in London, School of Economics, who told me, look, you got to take this seriously. You need to go a PhD and become an academic, and it's a whole different ball game." So I said, okay, fine. Tell me who are the, the five best PhD programs in the world. And one of them was Stanford Business mm. School, and I was lucky to get in. What I did was I felt, okay, I need to investigate this idea of a PhD. So I'm going to take a little bit of a leave from, from BCG and, and go to Stanford and see what this is all about. Mm. And it was wonderful because I landed at Stanford when Stanford was at its peak in this area called organization theory. You had some of the best prominent professors in the world. All of them were teaching there at the same time. And you could just, it was like a smorgasbord, you know, I meant <laughs> you could just go and take these courses from this, the, the very best in the world. It was incredible. And I think one of the people that you met while you were a student was Jim Collins. I did. So my first year, I met Jim and Jim Collins and Jerry Porras were working on the project at the time uh, of a book called Built to Last. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. Maybe they need some help. Yeah. So I just called them up and say, hey, can I come and work for you for six <laughs> months for free? And they said, hey, why not? <laughs> and that introduced me to the whole idea of management and, and with Jim. Um, and we've been, you know, really great friends ever since. And we, we wrote a book together, another study called Great by Choice. Yeah. But that was, yeah, that was another wonderful and, and so many wonderful people at Stanford at the time. 
I know that you spent a few years after receiving your PhD um, teaching, but you also went back into consulting for a, a period of time back to BCG in the San Francisco office. And from what I understand, that was around the time where you really began the to research how great businesses work and why they work. Yes, because I've done two kinds of research. The one is when you've been an academic, you have to write academic articles mm. for an academic audience. That's how you get tenure. That's how you get promoted. And that's what you learn in the PhD studies. So that was always going on since I started at Stanford. The other thing though is that I had a passion for more, say, applied management research to understand why do some leaders do better? Why do some leadership teams succeed? Others do not. So I took a little bit of time off from, from Harvard Business School. So when I finished at Stanford, I went, became an assistant professor at Harvard Business School. And then I took a little bit of leave from Harvard to go back into BCG. Now, we're, we're not talking about the aftermath of the dot-com boom, you know, in, the, in those years. And a lot of things were happening in the Silicon Valley. So it was a great place to be. And Jim and I started this product great by choice. And Jim had just written the book, Good to Great. You know, why do some companies and leaders go from good to great? Mm. But one question that he got from that book was, all right, you're studying companies in kind of stable industries. What about all this turbulence, uncertainty and disruption we're seeing in Silicon Valley and other places? How does that factor into this picture of building a great company? And Jim and I said, okay, let's study that. Let's pick some really industries that have historically been very disruptive mm. and see why did some do great there? And for example, the airline industry. Right. If you look at the history of the airline industry, it's always something happening there. I mean, talking about the pandemic. Yeah. Talk about 9-11. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, think about an industry where your market just goes away and you had to survive somehow. And the, the only airline that has done really well during that, the last four decades in that industry is Southwest Airlines. But why? Why did they do better? Yeah. It's an interesting thing. You always think that the leader, uh, those who do best, they, they sort of had an insight uh, where the market was going, where the business was going 10 years down the road. And yeah. they saw that and they said, troops, we're going in that direction. And that's visionary leadership. And and it's often not the case. So if you read about Southwest Airlines, which has a very unique business model, hmm. we call it the bus and wings, right? You fly back and forth between right. two cities and many have copied that since. So you think about, well, Herb Kelleher and the other leaders back then, they were visionaries. They came up with that model. Yeah, That was the myth about Southwest Airlines. It turns out Southwest Airlines did not invent a thing. They had no vision. What they did was that they were traveling on another airline called Pacific Southwest Airline, PSA, that here in California had been flying up and down the coast. Mm. And they were so strapped for money. They only had, could only afford a couple of aircraft to fly up and down. So they had to use them so much that they didn't have time to have them sit on the tarmac. So they said, well, you know, we're we just going to have them, you know, sit for 10 minutes to get people off, passenger off and passenger back on. 10-minute mm. turns, as they're called, right? You get into the airport. Think about that, 10 minutes. Yeah. But what it meant was that they were incredibly efficient because back then most uh, airlines like American Airlines and United were spending 50 minutes on the tarmac 
and they were 10. And then Southwest Airlines, Herb Keller and, and those, they flew on this airline. Mm. And they said, wow, what a great way to run an airline. <laughs> and they went back to Texas and they created their business plan. And it basically was copy PSA in Texas. Yeah. That's not visionary. So what does that mean for leadership? It means you have to be open to learn from others. Because maybe somebody has come up with a great idea that you can apply in your world. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's so interesting when I read, when I read that book and, and I, because of course, I think our minds instantly, and, and I'm sure people have, have asked you this, go to Steve Jobs, right? This, this person who is this kind of seemingly singular figure who is held up as the kind of the archetype of, of, of a great leader, a visionary who saw the world before the rest of us did and, um, and who prevailed. So is our interpretation of who he was wrong? So there might be some leaders who are vi more visionary than others, and they might see things that we don't see. But if you look at the process of how things get developed, it's, it's a much more of an iterative process. It, it isn't sort of like, I can see where the world is going and, and therefore I will take you there. If you go back, and there are nearly always other people around, so it's not just one person. So give an example of the development of Apple's iPod. So that was the iconic product back then that, yeah. that really made, set the stage for the phone and the iPad and the rest. It's not just Steve Jobs sitting there saying, okay, I'm going to give the world an iPod. Right. It's actually another person called Tony Fadell and others that are sort of thinking, hey, there are MP3 players out there. They're not very good. Nobody has figured this out. People are stealing music. Can we do it better? And they started doing this. Yeah. And they sort of had to convince Steve Jobs to go along and impress him with his product. So history is written. We think about Steve Jobs one day walking around in Palo Alto and saying, I can see an iPod in the future. <laughs> That's the visionary view. But if you look at the story around it, it's more like a, a development. Somebody has an idea, then other builds on that idea, and then yet another person, then they test it out. Steve Jobs get involved. And then over a period of time, they sort of come up with this great product. It takes a group, a team to do that, not just one person. One of the ideas that, that came out of that book also was that fast decision-making, even in a fast-moving world, is a good way to get killed. And I thought a lot about that over the past 18 months because, of course, uh, you know, the COVID months, I should say, because so many companies found themselves in a situation where they had to make fast decisions, not sure whether they they were the right decisions, but in many cases, they turned out to be the right decisions that they they survived and thrived during the pandemic. But historically, from from your research, making decisions too quickly is actually bad for a leader, for an organization. Yeah, this is a topic that I've also studied some more after Great by Choice, uh, including in this other book, Great at Work, because I find it fascinating. We sort of have two different models of, of thinking. One is the sort of the more deliberate, rational, spending time and getting data. And then it's sort of the reactive one. It's intuition, it's gut feeling, it's I'm just shooting for my hip kind of thinking. And what we found in, in Great by Choice is that 
some sometimes leaders move too fast. They see a market, they see a trend, and they jump on it. And it may be the wrong trend because they haven't done the thorough analysis. You're reacting to noise around you. Mm. And so we found that people who are a little more deliberate, if you take the long, if you play the long game, which is, okay, where, would we, where do we want this business to be in five to 10 years? That's how you build deliberately a, a great business is the long game, it's the 10 year view or even longer. Now, during the pandemic, there of course have been times when people had to make a decision. You had to shut down your office. Right. And you could, you have to sort of say, let's go, we had to go virtual. You don't have a year to think no. about how we're going to do virtual. You had to do it in days. In, in instantly, yeah. Yeah, and we all did that. And uh, and for some companies, that was not easy. First of all, people hadn't, you know, they were asking, what is Zoom? <laughs> what is that? I never used it, right? Yeah. You suddenly had to go virtual. And of course, you scrambled. Of course, you had to do that. And so there are, of course, these kind of very reactive decision moments. But for leaders is dangerous to think that all decisions are like that because many are not. I mean, give you an example from Great by Choice. Progressive insurance, they want to go in, into insurance for trucks, mm-hmm. you know, big big cars. Yeah. They said it's, it's just like automobiles, they're just drivers, but for bigger vehicles. And they did an analysis because they really wanted to go in that market and build it fast. And then they went aggressively into the market and they failed. It turned out that they couldn't get the prices, the margins they wanted in their business because of some nuances in the market that the analysis had not revealed. And it was a disaster. And they had to pull out right off the investment. So that was just too quick, too reactive, and it was a big loss. And then in contrast to that, a few years later, they said, okay, let's develop uh, insurance for safe drivers, which is the big part of the market. How are we going to do that? And they said, well, let's start slow, do experiments, try, say, 1,000 subscribers in Texas to see if we can get some good pricing. Yeah. And then another 1,000 in Florida. And they spent like three years kind of tinkering with their model. Then they got the model right for the business. They found a way to make money in that market segment. And once they did that, they said, okay, now we can go across the United States, all 50 states. So the concept there that came from Great by Choice was maybe you want to go slow at first. You want to find your model, and then once you find it, you can then go aggressively. But it pays to experiment up front, to find out what works in your business. And, and if the 1,000 subscribers in Florida didn't work out, well, you lost 1,000 subscribers and the money, but it's not a lot. Yeah. Right? It's an experiment. The idea of an experiment in business is try something out at a small scale. So if it fails, fine, doesn't matter. I didn't spend a lot of money. And sometimes leaders don't do that because they're so impatient. Let's, let's skip the experimentation phase and just go straight to the, the, the big bet. Yeah. And that's a good recipe for failing. So in 2011, Morton Hansen and Jim Collins released a book called Great by Choice, where they discussed the harm of fast decision-making. And before the break, Morton was telling me about slow decision-making in the face of a pandemic and whether companies can actually do that if they're scrambling just to survive. Instead of scrambling, they were scrambling. I would also say they were experimenting Hmm. in the sense of saying, okay, we need to find alternative ways to make money and survive. I have to try out new things. 
And, and some of them are not going to work out, and that's fine, but others might work out. And so I'm thinking, for example, of Wolfgang Puck, who's a f- well-known restaurateur sure. uh, throughout the country. He started experimenting. So yeah, everybody did sort of, okay, delivery at home, but what about we'll do the, the great meal and bring it home to you and you can have a, a great meal at home. So it's just not, you know, food in a small container, but right. we'll, make the, we'll make the cocktail. It's like as if you were in a restaurant. Yeah. And some of these things, he said, didn't work out and they shut them down. Others did. Uh, and, and you come up with these new ways of doing business. But we found this concept that I think is really fascinating. When you look at companies that are really successful, leaders that are really successful, somebody said, you got lucky. Right. But what we found is it's not exactly the truth. It's return on luck. And it's different. So there are two kinds of return on luck. One is good luck return. You got an opportunity that was handed to you. You saw the opportunity and you executed an opportunity. So give an example. I'm, I'm sitting here up in, in Napa in St. Helena. Mm. And there is a bike shop up here on Main Street. Like a small business. They're running a bike shop. I think they have two shops. And... You think, oh, in the pandemic, I thought, I'm feel so sorry for those Main Street businesses because yeah, nobody's yes, going right. to go to Main Street anymore. Right. But then I talked to the owner and they said, well, people are going to be home. They're going to be using bikes. They yeah. want more bikes. Yeah. He went out and bought hundreds of bikes wow. in a supply chain and had the best year ever. ever. Yeah. <laughs> But what, what does that say? Well, he could have said, oh, nobody's coming to mainstream anymore. I better, you know, shut down my business or, or, or make it very small. And I'm sure now I'm going to buy any bikes. So he saw something that in the moment was a good luck return. And then there's bad luck return. Uh, and bad luck means when the bad luck happens to you, does it wipe you out or do you survive? Was your business resilient before the bad luck? So... Did you have a lot of debt in your business, hmm. right? And if you had a lot of debt, it's hard to survive when you get hit by a pandemic. Yeah. So in Europe, there's been a, a, a great success called Norwegian Airlines. So an airline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, a a low-cost airline, right? goes from... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 It's, it's mm-hmm. a little bit of a copy of Southwest. Mm-hmm. Um, they went bankrupt yeah. during the pandemic. Yeah. And, but, and the reason they went bankrupt is that they have too much debt. They've expanded too fast. Right. They were flying to America and you overexpanded in the good times and you got hit and they didn't survive. You can't really escape from that so easily. And back to Southwest Airlines, I remember, you know, the, the legendary CEO for decades was Herb Kelleher, yeah. who passed away a few years ago. But he, they said about him, he forecasted the last 10 out of three recessions. He always said, there is a recession coming. We need to keep costs low Yeah, in good times, in good times, right? Yeah. That's easy to say in, in, in bad times, yeah. but it's so easy to lose your discipline in good times. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. I want to jump back and forth between between your, your newest book, Great at Work, and your previous book on collaboration, because I think there's some overlap um, on these ideas. And I want to I want to jump into this idea of, of effective um, meetings, right? Because so many people either convene or are subjected to meetings that are a waste of time, right? And one of the things you talk about in Great at Work is that in order for people to perform at their best, they have to encourage and pursue the kinds of meetings that are tough, that are difficult, where people are really not, you know, insulting each other, but respectfully disagreeing, ultimately to lead to maybe not total consensus, but at least the idea that everybody feels and has felt heard in order yes. to create some kind of buy-in. Absolutely. That, these kind of debate meetings, it's a responsibility of the leaders to make those productive just the way that you said. And, and so many meetings are ineffective. I have a coffee mug here. That's a great inscription. It says, I survived another meeting that should have been an email. <laughs> <laughs> I, the, the purpose of a, I mean, there are different kinds of meetings, but one purpose of one meeting is to get people in the room or virtual room and have a great debate. And I teach this. I have a case and out of cases, you learn things. And one of my favorite cases that I teach, it's the Bay of Pigs. So President John F. Kennedy, in early on in his tenure as president, made a decision with his team to launch this Bay of Pig invasion of Cuba where there were 1,400 Cuban exiles that they have recruited and trained and equipped and sent them into Cuba to stage an uprising to topple the Fidel Castro regime. Yeah. But here's the interesting part. What I teach is the decision-making process in Kennedy's team. There was no debate. The debate that was there was so superficial. I'll give an example. So one important part was that, well, if you're sending in 1,400 soldiers into Cuba against an army of 50,000, a paramilitary force of 200,000, there has to be an uprising. 
that means that Castro had to be very unpopular among many people for that to be true. Yeah. So that was an assumption in the plan. It was never really debated. Is he unpopular? Yeah. How unpopular? Will there be an uprising? They sat around in the room and Arthur Schlesinger, junior advisor, said about the meetings, there was a curious atmosphere of assumed consensus. Mm. And another character said, well, you know, everybody was voting in favor, so I did the same. That's the definition of groupthink. They were just sitting around, going with the flow. It's the opposite of what we're talking about, right? What you need is a rigorous debate. Mm. Uh, what, what is great about Kennedy, though, is that he learned from his failure. 18 months later, we had a Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. And there you see real debate. So it means also leaders can change, right? And, and this goes down to techniques. When I tell leaders, okay, it's about your behaviors. So if you show up in a room, a meeting as a leader, and you start the meeting by saying, I think we should do X, what do the rest of you think? You're biased the meeting now. Who's going to say in a meeting, oh, I don't think we should do X, I think we should do something else, right? You, you got to start by saying, what are the options here and what do you think we should be doing? Open-ended questions. So that's technique that, that changes the nature of a, of a meeting room. I'm curious about an idea that you, you present around collaborative meetings and about this idea of you know, creating a, an environment where there is vigorous debate. And one of the things you write is that sometimes a leader has to commit to an idea that unites the team, even if the leader disagrees with it. That's scary to do, right? Um, you're, and I, and I, just to clarify, you're not saying go with the lowest common denominator. What, what, what you're essentially saying is you may not like the outcome, but if everyone in that room or most people in that room do like it, you're better off going with, with that decision. Yeah, it comes to the question, when you're trying to have a great debate, the purpose of that is to come up with the, the right decision that you deem is mm -hmm. the, the best one given the circumstance. And sometimes as a leader, that may not be your plan. That means a leader has to be open to changing their minds. I, I would say one thing, though, uh, what we learn, that consensus mm. can be very dangerous. Right. Because when you have a team striving for consensus, there is a pressure to conform. There's a, wait a minute, we've been sitting here hours debating don't say no again. Don't be the dissenting voice. I sometimes say that consensus is the enemy of good collaboration. And that, that yeah. surprises people. Oh, I thought we were supposed to sit around and debate until we got total agreement. Consensus is that we all agree. No, it's you disagree to, on something. And at that point, the leader has to step in and, and, and make the call. Yeah, I mean, I thought a lot about when I was reading the book, I thought a lot about, um, and it's still early, too early to, and, and will be for several years to understand the decisions behind how the withdrawal from Afghanistan happened. And, and, and much of that was set in motion by, by the previous administration. But the impression that one gets from reading contemporaneous accounts of the Biden administration's withdrawal in, in the timeline, in the time frame, was that there was consensus among his team of national security advisors and military advisors that um, the Afghan army would not collapse rapidly, that there was a, a that it, it seems as if everybody agreed that it would be fine, at least for a few years. And they were wrong. Now, we don't know 
all the details yet about the internal conversations, but the impression one gets is that there was consensus that this was going to be relatively smooth. Yeah, I, I, I'm looking forward to the day where we have the details, uh, like we did for Bay of Pigs eventually, yeah. uh, to see that. And if that is true, then then that's a decision-making trap. We fell into this uh, trap of, of, of consensus. It reminds me of Alfred Sloan, the legendary leader of General Motors. There is a great saying that he was sitting in this with his team in the boardroom. And he says, it appears that we're all in agreement now. Let's come back in a few days so we have developed some disagreements. <laughs> I, I like that parable because uh, everybody's in agreement in the room. Yeah. Okay, well, let's take a, take a pause here and, and, and get some time to develop disagreement, different viewpoints. I want to I wanna dive into this idea of collaboration for a bit. It's still very, very difficult to create collaborative environments. Most large organizations and even some, some smaller ones are siloed. Creating collaborative environments is difficult. It is not easy to do, especially when that environment is not collaborative to start with. Yes, I think it has become one of the most challenging leadership issues of today. Environments, business environments or, or government environments or nonprofit environments are not set up to collaborate. One industry that picked that, that up to a great extent was hospitals. If you look at hospitals, they struggle with collaboration because they have specialized doctors and nurses and departments. Yeah. But as a patient, you want to be treated as a whole person. Uh, you don't want to have one specialist looking at your legs and another specialist looking at your lungs and, and nobody has a full picture. Yet that's how they're organized. So they have to collaborate, but they find it incredibly difficult. And it's true in business, any, any business uh, as well. And, and it's oftentimes because the way we manage is that we say, okay, you are in charge of the sales office in, say, Texas, and I'm going to evaluate you on your own performance. How much do you sell? How well is your department doing? How many new clients? And so on. But what if the Texas then need to work with the Florida office? And, and what if they want to share best practice? What developed in Texas was, was also great for Florida. Well, how about transferring that practice? So suddenly you're getting, oh, wait a minute, that's not my job. My job is to sell in Texas. That's how you reward me. And that's how you measure my performance. That's the kind of system we have built. And it's a beauty to that system. But it breaks down the moment you need those different people or departments or sales offices to collaborate. There are very few examples I can think of where organizations actually place collaboration at the top of the incentive structure. In other words, I think because in, in, in ways it's hard to measure it. But if you think about great organizations that, um, that function well because of collaboration, you know, everybody wants to be like that. But how do, you, how do you build in incentives to get people to do that, to work together? Yeah, I think you, you, you hit on the problem there, which is it's harder to measure. Uh, first of all, you have to say as a leader, I want people to collaborate. Uh, not, it's just not a nice to have, it's a must have. So I'm going to change the incentive system. Let's go back to this example of two sales offices, one in Texas, one in Florida. And let's say the, the people in Texas have developed a, a much better way of handling, say, customer calls. And, and Florida can use that, but there needs to be a transfer best practice between the two. Yeah. So what you have to do is to say, okay, you have to value at uh, Texas and Florida 
did the people in Texas help out? I expect them to do so, and I'm going to measure that. Now, that is more subjective. Yeah. It requires a, a different way of measuring. You have to ask people who helped who in the company. Uh, and and then you may you need to collect that data, and some organizations do. And then you have to say, well, that needs to count. It needs to count a lot. So you need to make that really a top requirement. You know, I think about there's a famous, and I, I know you're familiar with this, but but for a long time, Sears, they were surveying their employees to find out how satisfied are you, you know, at work. And and I I think you you know where I'm going with this, but there was a clear correlation between the satisfaction that employees felt at work and profits. When one was up, the other one was up. When one was down, the other one was down. When employees felt great about how they were treated, um, their work environment, their work was better and and more profit came to the company. It's it's an interesting idea, and I think it's been widely studied, right, that that when people feel like they're part of a team or part of a you know organization that's moving in the same direction, they tend to function more efficiently, better. They're happier. Yeah, and it, again, it's so interesting to see that you know you you do a survey like that back in the day when that was not done, and you come up with this correlation, and you say, "Wow, this is interesting. Maybe this is true." I think today's equivalent of that is that your employees feel a sense of purpose and passionate about their job. And this is a, something I studied in great at work. We sort of ask all these employees, do they feel a sense of purpose, that what they do is meaningful, meaningful contributions to the world, and they feel a sense of passion about what they do. And passion and purpose are not the same things. Purpose is what you can give the world. And passion is sort of what the world can give you. Mm. Do you feel passionate about your work? It's exciting. You get up in the morning and you, you feel you want to go to work, or virtual or otherwise. And what we found, which is interesting, in that book, Great at Work, we, we found that there were seven factors that produce great performance. And the second most important factor was that people felt passion and purpose at work. Both passion it, and purpose. Yeah. Both passion and purpose, right? They, I, they were excited and they felt that their work was meaningful. Both of those. You can have one without the other. Uh, it's possible. But having both provided, and this is interesting, provided more focused energy. So they hmm. said, I'm going to commit myself. I'm dedicated. I'm going to spend these hours at work the best way I can spend them. Work is no longer drudgery. I'm not looking at it for it to end. You know, at five o'clock, I can finish. And that focused energy produces performance. So as a leader, you know, if you want satisfied or happy employees and you want to perform well, you need to work on, on making sure people have a sense of purpose and they feel passionate. If you are in management and, and you want to feel passionate and purposeful, but you're not quite feeling those things, can you engineer it so you can find those two, those two things? Yeah, I think you can. And I think we have evidence to that. But we need to define purpose properly here. And I sort of call it the purpose pyramid. There are different kinds of purpose. One is to make a meaningful contribution beyond yourself. And that's sort of at the bottom of the pyramid, right? It's called value creation. What I do actually has value. And it has value for me. That's kind of the second level. It may not have for you, but it has value for me. 
And then comes the social mission on top. I actually feel what I do, you know, is helping society beyond making profit for my company. Great thing about Greater Work Study is that we came across people in seemingly mundane jobs. But when you start talking to people in those jobs, they actually feel it, which is the important part. So give an example. Genevieve, a concierge at a hotel in Canada. That's a professor. I thought, okay, there's a job with no purpose. Okay, let's talk to Genevieve. Genevieve had a very strong sense of purpose. And she defined her job as, you know, what I'm doing, people come to Quebec, oftentimes on vacation. So they're spending a week here or a few days in my hotel. It is my job, it was my purpose to make sure they have a really good experience here. Because hmm. that's important to them, to other visitors. And she said, I love doing that. I'm an extrovert. I love talking to people. It's a perfect job for me. And I can make that contribution to people. She felt it. That's purpose. There may not be a social mission there that you're making the world a better place in that sense. You're not curing cancer. You're not uh, curing COVID patients in a hospital. But in that respect, in that business, you're making a meaningful contribution and that's purpose. And if you can make your employees feel that, then uh, not only are they performing better, they're happier. And, and you as a, as a leader have done a better job. I want to shift one more time to this idea of collaboration because I think the conventional wisdom, right, is that in order to collaborate, you've got to see people. In this future world we are entering into of hybrid work, how can we recreate those collaborative interactions or those interactions, I should say, that foment and inspire collaboration when you're just kind of walking around or people saying, oh, meet this person or that person. There's a great story um, that I remember from Procter & Gamble, uh, which was th the way that crest white strips were developed, which was uh, a person working in the toothpaste department met somebody working in the plastic wrap department, and they had lunch, and the, the, guy, the guy at the plastic wrap department says, oh, you know, give me the, the material you're using, and I'll, I'll develop it, and I'll put on plastic wrap, and that, that turned into crest white strips, right? Uh, the teeth whitening strips. So how do you, I mean, can we recreate that in what is clearly going to be a, more of a virtual work world in the future? Yeah, I think this is the, the very big leadership and management challenge going forward. And, and here is the problem. Uh, there's a certain type of human interaction, collaboration, that is best done in person. Mm. You're sitting around the room, you're brainstorming, you're building on each other's ideas, it's quick back and forth. Uh, I can see your body language, I can see your smile, frown, or it's, we walk around in the hallways and we happen to bump into each other and have some ideas and, and something comes out of that. Right? That kind of informal and, and meeting interactions. It's so hard to do that properly on Zoom or WebEx or Microsoft Teams. And, and if you look at some survey data from Boston Consulting Group the last year during the pandemic, that's what people complain about, that they are not able to do that really well in most cases. So if that's true, and if that is important in your business, you got to get people back into the office or into the physical work environment. And if that's true, then it means people cannot work from anywhere. That the work from anywhere revolution is not going to happen if people, hmm. you know, if there's some kind of work interactions that we need to do being physically together. And now there might be other types of work that we used to do in the office, like sitting in a boring meeting that could have been an email 
or uh, solo work. Uh, you know, if I need to write a marketing report, maybe I'm better off sitting at home for four hours. Nobody's going to interrupt me. So solo work is maybe best done at home. And this in-person collaboration is best done in the office together. Now, if that's true, those two things are true, you land at the hybrid model where you have some days in the office together and some days where you can be at home or somewhere else. So I think that we are the, the management model going forward is a hybrid model. We have some days in the office and some days we can be flexible. But I think there's a caveat to what I just said, which I think is fascinating. Maybe, just maybe, we will develop technology yeah. that is actually going to make those in-person right. interactions possible right. virtually, right? We're not there yet. I mean, Zoom is no, not there. Right. Right? We are far away from it, but maybe one day we will. I think this is going to be a fascinating management challenge going forward. Can you actually run your teams virtually? And if so, it would have enormous consequences. Because think about it. If we think about it, yeah. okay, we have defined work as a workplace, a physical place you have to go to. And I demand you to come into that place. Imagine that was not true because we can do things virtually. It means... I can recruit from anywhere in the world. It means I can have talent sitting across America. They don't all have to be in one city where I happen to be as a leader. It means people can live in other areas where there's maybe better living standards for them, not expensive places sitting in a small apartment in Manhattan in New York. If this happens, it also means at the society level, maybe the downtown office landscape will disappear. Because why would you go downtown and commute for an hour if you don't have to, it will have enormous implications. But right now we are not there. We're far away. The in-person collaboration is still the sort of the management approach of today. Will it change? Uh, for one, we need lots better technology than we have today. One of the things that really stuck out to me was, um, and this is really advice for, for leaders, which is to win people over play to their emotions and see their perspective to anticipate their concerns. Um, I mean, I think I understand what you mean by that, but what what do you mean by that, to, to win people over, play to, play to their emotions? So this is actually part of collaboration. If you're going to work with uh, people across units, um, they might be sitting in a different apartment from you or a different business, mm. different uh, partner. You have to be able to understand where they're coming from, perspective taking, understand cognitively what are their, is their agenda, what are their concerns, and also emotionally where are they coming from. The emotional side goes to inspiration. Can you evoke emotions in someone else in the right way so they feel, they feel inspired by you? because they feel emotionally invested in what you're trying to do. If you can do that as a leader, you will win, win people over. If you stir the wrong emotions, like I get angry with what you have done, you get the opposite. And when leaders try to change their company or change something, they often get this wrong. So let me get a very trivial example, but it's very telling. A leader of an oil company wanted to institute a cost-cutting measure in the oil company. So they launched a change effort, cost-cutting, and they thought, well, let's start with sort of the symbolic thing. 
which was to cut out all the free coffee in the offices. The problem was that it stirred the wrong emotion. People got angry, frustrated. The leaders thought, well, this is so trivial. Nobody's going to care, really. They can just bring their own Starbucks into the office. People were so upset. Yeah. So upset. And so now the emotions you have stirred now as a leader is anger and frustration against your change effort. So when it comes to the real changes, the real hard cost cuttings, people were opposed. Yeah. So we have to learn as leaders to understand where people are coming from and, and what, what you want are positive emotion about the new future. How would our com- oil company look like if we have lower costs and we can do more things maybe in renewable energy in the ne- coming decades? Hope, excitement about the future and, and maybe anger about the status quo. And that's the job of a leader, to stir those emotions. More for your book, Great at Work, you interviewed hundreds of people and, and analyzed thousands of case studies to come to, to, the, to the conclusion, which is the title of the book, that, that top performers do less. Uh, they actually work better they uh, and achieve more, which is counterintuitive in our in in I think it's changing certainly there's a huge cultural shift around work and the meaning of work. And I think it's driven by um, younger generations of of people who understand that life isn't just about work. but the point here that you make is that the top performers in your analysis don't spend a hundred hours a week on work they they're not tied to their computers or desks all the time, that actually the top performers um, have a, you know, a very kind of varied life where work is one part of it. It's a finding that I didn't believe in myself hmm. because I had done the opposite, you know, work, as I told you in BCG, work hard. I never learned what Natalie and BCG did, but I learned something more important to that during that study. Natalie was your colleague at, at, at BCG at, who didn't work as much right. as you did, but was a better performer. Exactly. Yeah. Um, But I learned something more important, which was systematically across 5,000 case studies, what did the best people do? The really top 10% performers. And and counterintuitively or strikingly, they did less. They had fewer priorities, but the right ones. They had fewer metrics, but the right metrics. They had fewer meetings, but the right meetings. Everything fewer, but better. And that is so counterintuitive because we, we have a do more. More is, more is better paradigm in business, in management. As opposed to asking the question, how few projects, how few metrics, how few hours, given that I must perform extraordinarily well? It's a different question. I was giving a talk in Denver about the book and, and somebody in the audience heard me, a president of a company, a small sort of medium-sized company called Master Electronic. They do distribution of computers and they've done quite well during the pandemic. But he sort of said, okay, I'm going to take this concept back to my Salesforce and say, we should do fewer customers, but do them better. And, and some people say, say, no, of course not. I need to sell also to the small customers because after all, that's meet, helped me meet my quota and I spent a little bit of time on them. And, and so I don't want to do this, do less thing. <laughs> doesn't sound like a good thing to me. I need to do more. I have lots of customers I need to call to, to sell them equipment. But he sort of persisted this later and said, no, 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 no. We got to try this, do less. And what I wanted to do, concentrate on fewer customers and do them better. Better interactions, better service, better everything. And after a year, that approach suddenly 
started yielding results beyond what they had done before. Growing faster, better sales, better quota, everything better. Now, it makes sense that, you know, it's sort of the 80-20 rule maybe, that spend time where it matters. Concentrate your effort on what really matters and not on a lot of other stuff that is marginal. And so many of us do. We have long priority lists. Right? We have mm. 10 items. Can I do all 10? Well, ask yourself, what is the top three that really move the needle? One of the things that, that I, I'm still, I mean, I think it's so important, but still so hard for people to wrap their heads around is this idea that, you know, we should not really work more than 50 hours a week. Really, that is sort of the, the, the more or less the maximum limit, maybe a few more, but that's, you, you've got to basically be disciplined about putting, <laughs> putting a limit on it. And in fact, that based on all your research, the highest performers are people who don't work that much more than 50 hours a week. I think it's very hard for people to wrap their head around that idea. Yeah. But here's the question. The question is not how many hours should I or can I work. It is, if I have 50 hours, you put that constraint on yourself. The question is, how do I spend the 50 hours? Do I spend it in the best way possible? Putting that constraint is actually liberating because it forces you to do less, it forces you to focus on purpose and passion. It forces you to have the right kind of meetings. It forces you to spend the time that you have in the best possible way, as opposed to be doing how many hours can I be awake and work? And I think you'll have a better life. And that's the last chapter of Greater Work. People who are actually able to do this, they have better work-life balance, they're more satisfied in their job, and they're lower burnout. And that's a great way to work and live. That's Morten Hansen, author of the book, Great at Work, How Top Performers Do Less, Work Better, and Achieve More. And his first book on team building and cooperative innovation, it's called Collaboration, How Leaders Avoid the Traps, Build Common Ground, and Reap Big Results. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built It Productions. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.